thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thank you all. Take your Bible with me and turn to Galatians, the fifth chapter. We're going to resume where we left off last week in the last two verses of the fifth chapter and the first six verses of the sixth chapter. Jesus is the game changer when it comes to making us right with God. In the book of Romans chapter 5, the Bible says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, the word justified means being made right with God, we had no capacity to do that. Because one sin in my life, if I had lived a perfect life and only committed one sin, the Bible is very clear, I would be a sinner. And I would have to have a way to get back to the Lord. The problem is that I was born dead spiritually. Did you know that? I, before coming to know faith, was dead in trespass against God. But the good news is that Jesus came and He paved the way for us to be justified, made right with God. And the consequence of that, that's a poor word, the benefit of that would be better that we have peace with God through that same Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place. He changes everything. As we enter this Christmas season, one of my favorite songs of the Christmas season is A Baby Changes Everything. If you are a parent, you know that in your own life, right? how that baby who came into your life changed everything in your life. But nothing compares to the baby who was born by the Virgin Mary because he was not any ordinary child. Rather, he was God become man. And that's what we really sink our teeth into when we think of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a game changer when it came to our being made right with God, standing in a position of favor, not because of anything we have done, but because of who He is and what He has done for us. As surely as Jesus Christ is the game changer for our being made right with God, Holy Spirit of God is the game changer when it comes to our growing in Christ, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus says about Holy Spirit in the book of John chapter 14. He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper just like me that He may be with you forever. Jesus was beginning to reveal to His men there in the upper room that His time with them was fast sinking away. And their hearts were heavy because of that and understandably so. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as individuals if we know Jesus. The Bible says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And the word 
you there is singular. We can't tell whether it's singular or plural when we read it in English, but in the original language of the Bible in the New Testament, it's clear individually. Don't you know, Mike Woods, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And what is the basis of that? Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and then He did not spare Himself any suffering, yet He came in order to secure our salvation to make us right with God. And Holy Spirit was sent by the Father by request to the Son to come and live in our lives. And believe it, He has made your spirit internally a holy of holies. What a marvelous thing. It's hard to understand and it's hard to really fully embrace, but it's the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who links us up with God the Father and helps us to be all that we can be. The Bible says about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, y'all all keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm doing a southern interpretation of that, but it's also an accurate interpretation of it, that we who know Christ have the Holy Spirit living in us, and Holy Spirit wants us to be filled with Himself. And that amounts to our being surrendered to Him. We've sung about surrendering our lives to the Lord this morning together. And we have the possibility not simply of being indwelled by the Spirit, but being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Many people make the mistake of limiting the matter of being filled to the, by the Holy Spirit to an experience that we have with God by the Holy Spirit. Now sure, we do have an experience when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But what we see in that same section where we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we are introduced to the fact that being filled with the Spirit is something that has practical impact upon our lives. As we looked last week about how the Spirit is one with whom we are to walk. We are to walk by the Holy Spirit. Some translations translate those words walk in, but the word by is equally a possibility. In fact, I would go on record as saying it is the best translation, that we walk by the Holy Spirit, that is, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Christian life is a walk with God by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who is not only interested in an experience with us, that's a beginning point and an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, but also He wants to demonstrate the love of God through us just as surely as He demonstrated the love of God through Jesus Christ. Here again, we're not at a loss for the ability to do that because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's read this passage of Scripture before us in an attempt to, from these verses, determine 
the practical outcome that should be part of our lives by walking in the Spirit of God. We were going to begin with verse 25. It says in chapter 5, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What we learned last week is the word which is translated walk here differs from the word that is used earlier in this chapter. Look at verse 16 to remind you of what we learned last week. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. To our English reading eyes, when we see walk by the Spirit in verse 16, and then we come back to verse 25, and we are told we're also to walk by the Spirit, it would be logical for us to conclude the words in the original language translated walk are identical, but that's not the case. Identical in our English language, but they mean different things. The one in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit, is a word which suggests progression. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to progress in our spiritual growth. Remember, Holy Spirit is the game changer in what happens after we're made right with God. Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, to use the theological term, biblical term, but it's the idea of growing into Christ's likeness. He's the one that moves us in that direction. He's the one who equips us in our spiritual growth, expressed in practical things, attitudes and actions in our lives as we're going to see. Looking again at the latter part of chapter 5 of Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That word for walk is a military term. It was a word to describe soldiers who got in formation and they walked in step to the cadence of their leader. And we have a leader. We know Jesus is our Lord, but we also know the Bible says Holy Spirit's our Lord, and He is the one who leads us. We are led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us to walk in line in favor with the Lord as we do. Look at verse 26. And we'll look at the first thing we need to know about the practical outcome of walking by the Holy Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is not expressed in our boasting. We all are predisposed to boast. We are some more adept at covering up the boasting because we know it's not right but we just can't help ourselves sometimes get a group of men who played sports together or fished together or hunted together and before long they begin to talk about the old days the good old days anybody ever do that if you have a reunion with a sports team you played on or with your cronies from boyhood when you'd go hunting or fishing together and the stories grow, don't they? The longer we live. And we think back and we're listening to each other and we start trying to outdo one another in the storytelling and we embellish on the stories by adding more to them which have been our own achievement in the interim between the last time we met and that moment. We have a tendency, even in the body of Christ, 
to boast. Look at verse 26. Let us not become boastful. Let's look at this phrase, let us not become, for just a moment. The construction of that command, let us not become, indicates that you don't become, after you come to know Christ, in your new walk in the Spirit, you don't become overly boastful all at once. It's a gradual thing, a gradual giving in to our own selfishness and we become more and more enamored with ourselves and less and less likely to recognize that it's the Spirit who does anything in my life that matters for the long run, the Holy Spirit of God. So we're not to become boastful. There is some indication in this chapter, actually, of chapter 6, where Paul talks about what he boasts in, and it's a legitimate boast. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the basis for our boasting. We boast in Him, don't we? And this is a fulfillment of what God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in the ninth chapter. He says, don't boast because you're wise. Don't go boast because you're strong. Don't boast because you are mighty in emphasis in, in your lifestyle. But boast of this, that you understand and know me. The one thing that we have a license, if not a command to do, is boast in our knowing the Lord. And who is the focus of that? Well, it's the Lord. We focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, we know that's the Holy Spirit working in us. You do know why? The Holy Spirit is one who teaches us all things, all things pertaining to life and godliness. We know that. Thank, thank you, Holy Spirit. But also, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness to Jesus. When you and I share anything about Christ to others, we do it in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and the outcome is that that makes an impact on those people. So the Holy Spirit is the one we boast by and we boast about whom? Jesus Himself. The Holy Spirit has been described by theologians in this way. He is the shy member of the Godhead. He doesn't ever put the limelight on Himself. Anytime there is a movement of the Spirit of God, do you know who the spotlight is on? It's always Jesus. Never the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is very, very comfortable with His role. Fully God. He's on a level with God the Father and God the Son in what we call the Trinity. But what we do know is the Holy Spirit is the one who boasts about Jesus. And really, the only thing we have right to boast about is what Christ is to us and what He has done for us and through us. And we're not to become boastful. We see some elaboration on how these to whom 
Paul wrote the book of Galatians, were probably already falling into boasting and therefore being out of step with the Spirit. One of those is challenging one another. And let's go ahead and look at the other, envying one another. The word challenging and the word envying are at opposite ends of the spectrum, actually, because one speaks of a sense of confidence and a sense of great ability and really self-centeredness, being glad about who you are and being one who wants to talk about your accomplishments for God, of course. And envying one another, that speaks not of superiority, but of inferiority. That's what that speaks about. So you have these two different poles when it comes to the matter of boasting. So you ask, how is being one who is envying of another qualifies as boasting? Well, let me try to explain this to you. And I'm going to borrow something I learned years ago from a great man of God. His name is A.W. Tozer. I never met him in person, but I've read several of his books, and God has used him to help me to understand how to follow Christ more fully and more fruitfully. And in one of the books that I had in my possession at that time, I've since loaned it out and it didn't come back. If you've got it, please bring it to me. I'd like to have it. But there's a chapter in there and it says, are you boasting or belittling? And then I thought, where's he going with this? And then as I read it, I became very aware of what he was talking about. If we boast, that's rather obvious, isn't it? If I brag on myself, that's rather obvious. That's self-centeredness. And it's incompatible with a life that is led by the Holy Spirit. But he also raised the question, when you belittle yourself, who is the center of attention? And then he answers his own question, but immediately I realized where he was going. I'm the center of attention when I belittle myself. What happens with many of us who know Christ is, We know we're not supposed to boast, outright boast. So we have a subtle way of belittling ourselves so people will think, wow, how spiritual he is because he puts himself down. In either case, that is being a person who is conceited, boasting. So it's possible that we have this kind of response. One of the one and or the other, both are incompatible with the life of walking by the Spirit. Let's read a little further in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. For anyone thinks he is someone or something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, that sounds pretty negative about us, were it not the fact that we were designed in Christ by the Spirit to let our light shine before men so that they may see our good works and honor and glorify God. Christ in us is the means whereby we are able 
to represent, as it were, Christ to other people. And so we yield to Him. The Apostle Paul writes about this very thing in, that we read from verse 3 in the third chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. We've seen on another occasion or two that the book of 1 Corinthians was written to what we would arguably say the most spiritually gifted church in the New Testament era. We would be right. They had so many spiritual gifts. But at the same time, they were the least mature. They were still acting like babies, and they were all about themselves. And they prided themselves in the gifts they had instead of priding themselves in the gift the Holy Spirit was to them and how God could be glorified through them. Paul was the founder of the church from a human perspective. He had companions when he went to Corinth, but he was the obvious leader. Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians 3, I am nothing. And then there was a man who followed Paul, a man who was one who exceeded the Apostle Paul in his oratorical skills. He could keep people spellbound for a long time just through his ability to speak in a very appealing way. And he says, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. He could have put Peter in that group because he's alluded to him earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. He said, we're all nothing. It is Christ by the Spirit of God who is everything. So when it says in verse 3 of chapter 6 of Galatians, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The Bible says in the book of John chapter 3 verse 27, a man can receive nothing except it is given to him from heaven. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes these words to the Corinthians. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? One of the earmarks of a person who is a growing follower of Christ, a growing Christian as we would say, is an understanding that apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. Everything that comes into me from God is designed to go out through me to others in ministering to other people. So if you sense, as I do from time to time, that I'm riding a high horse and I'm gradually, if not abruptly, going from depending on the Lord to focusing on myself and centering on myself, take note of this. Look at verse 4 of chapter 6 of Galatians but that each one examine his own work. And by the way, the word translated examine is keep on examining, but let each one keep on examining his or her work, and then he or she will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone. Now, if you're really honest, and I'm really honest, when I take a self-examination, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, these are the words of God through Paul. It's not surprising that if Paul wrote what he writes here, later he would have written these words. He says, take periodic examinations 
of yourself. Do you know how we do that? We go to the great physician. God, by the Spirit, speaks to us through the Word of God. This is what we do daily. Hopefully, you have a practice of spending time alone with the Lord for fellowship with Him, to hear from Him and get direction from Him, and correction. It's almost daily that I get correction because I'm tempted to sin and I take the bait that has been placed before me and then I realize immediately another aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. He not only is the one who teaches us, He's not only the one who bears witness to us, but He's also the one, according to Jesus in John 16, who convicts me of my sin. It's like a quick jab in my heart when I sin. I know it when I sin. Immediately. And when that happens, what the Lord will clearly emphasize to me and to you as we come before Him and ask Him to examine us, He'll show us areas of our lives which we're still hanging on to. Do you have such an area in your life? Is there some pet sin that you have yet to really let go of? You let go of it for a while and it keeps coming back. Now there's no possibility of perfection in this life, so don't mishear me. But what I'm saying is, we have sins that we love so much and we think, Lord, give me some slack. You know that I'm living about 95% sold out to you. And come on, Lord, give me a break. We know the Lord knows that the break He gives us, if He were to give us, is not a good thing for us. But more importantly, it's not a good thing for His representation through us. We are kept from being and doing what we otherwise would do in such a situation. So we are to examine our work. And when we get alone with the Lord and quit comparing ourselves to other people, then we're getting down to the place we ought to be, a place of humility. We'll let Paul help us a little bit out now at this point from Romans, the 12th chapter. And the verse that I want to isolate on, and you can look it up if you want, it's the third verse, but I'm just going to quickly take a look at it with you. It says, have a sober judgment of yourself. Do not think too highly of yourself. And the NIV hits the other side of that. Or don't think too little of yourself. Have a sane estimate of yourself. Does the Lord love you? Do you believe the Lord loves you? How do we know this? Well, I quoted earlier from Romans 5, 1 about... We have been made right. We've been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's made us right. But a little further in that passage of Scripture, the Bible says God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that Nothing can separate us who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Isn't that awesome? When I sin after I come to Christ, does that mean I lose my salvation and I have to start at square one all over again? No. It means that I need to grow and I need to be a man who denies myself the control room of my life and say, Lord, I've done it again. I've overstepped my bounds and I've taken your rightful place in my life to call the shots in my life. And so we think of this passage of Scripture and we think about how the Lord wants to use us and He loves us. Before going beyond that thought, I'd like to quote one verse. These are the words of God the Father through the prophet Jeremiah. I believe it's a 30 first chapter and the third verse. It says, I have loved you and the King James Version, I like this, listen to it. Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And yea was an old, old way of saying yes, I have loved you. But yea, I think he's saying hooray, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He loves us and he's shown his love to us as we saw a moment ago by what? We can so glibly run across that verse. God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was the Son of God. He gave His only Son. In that same passage of Scripture, Paul writes something like this. I'm not quoting it verbatim, but he says, a man will scarcely give his son for another man who is good. But certainly, a man in his right mind would never give his son for someone who is his enemy. But that's exactly, isn't it, what Christ did for us, what God the Father did for us in Christ. And it shows how much He loves us. So there's no inconsistency between what God says in verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He doesn't look at us as being worthless. In fact, He looks at us as being of great worth. We know what the value of something is based on what the buyer is willing to pay for that something. What did God the Father pay? What was the price that He paid for you and me so He could be our Father? He sent His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a God. What a Gospel. It is good news, isn't it? And we need to understand this. Walking by the Spirit isn't expressed in boasting. So what is it expressed in? Well, let's look at the rest of this passage. Walking by the Spirit is expressed via our bearing one another's burdens. And this boils down, as we'll see in verse 1 of chapter 6 of Galatians, to loving others through us. It's not without purpose that in the list that we saw last week of the fruit of the Spirit, if you can glance back up the page in your Bible to verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then there are several other characteristics. But what tops the list? Love. 
Some have said that you can find elements of love in all the others. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, etc. So we know that's to be the truth. But walking by the Spirit is expressed by bearing one another's burdens. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. Here again, it's a command that is a present tense command. It can be interpreted properly this way. Keep on bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Glance back up the page to the fifth chapter, verse 14. Paul writes, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus had a lot to say about our loving one another. And one of the ways that the Lord Jesus Christ is honored in our lives, and one of the ways the Holy Spirit motivates us, is to love our brothers. And not just when they're lovable, but when they're not lovable. And this will fulfill the law of Christ. So, let's see how this happens. There's a rescuing and then there's a restoring in this ministry. Verse 1, brothers, that's an endearing word. It's a family word. We are siblings in Christ. If you know Jesus, and I know Jesus, we are brother to sister, or brother to brother in Christ. Isn't that amazing? The church is the family of God. And that's good news for us. Brothers, even if a man is caught in any trespass. The idea here, a trespass, literally means to fall down. That's what it literally means, to fall down. It's not the normal word in the New Testament for sin, but it does reflect what sin is. We fall down. And notice the way he describes this, caught in any trespass. The word picture which is painted by the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit here is of a little animal minding its own business and all of a sudden a trap has been set for the little animal and we know this because of the way in which the word was used outside the New Testament and all of a sudden that animal finds itself trapped caught in a trap minding his or her own business caught in a trap and sometimes we're all responsible for our sins. We can't blame mother or daddy or husband or wife or child or boss. We can't, we can't blame anybody for our own sin. We're responsible. But you perhaps have experienced like I have. I'm walking by the Spirit. And something comes up in my life and all of a sudden I find myself in a ditch of sin. Has that ever happened to you? It's just like that and you wonder... What happened? Well, we know what happened. We were tempted by the enemy. He appealed to our fleshliness, that is, the things that we looked at last week that characterize the works of or deeds of the flesh. There's that long list. And we were trapped. Did we cooperate with the trapping? We did. Because we lost our alertness. This is why throughout the New Testament, the Bible says, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. We always have to be on guard as it relates 
to the life of walking by the Holy Spirit. So, do you know anybody besides yourself who's been caught in a trespass like that? What does he say? Brothers, notice it's pluralized. Brothers, it's not one person's responsibility. It's our responsibility. Let us, brothers, you who are spiritual, let me pause here just a moment. What qualifies you for being spiritual? I believe the context of this part of the letter to the Galatians tells us who are the spiritual believers. We're all spiritual, but some have learned the secret of really being led by the Spirit. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5 again. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Then look at verse... Let me see where it is. 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then look at the verse we began with today, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's people who are led by the Spirit, who walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. So those who are given the responsibility to go and find the one who is trapped in his or her own sin and can't seem to find his or her way out, you have to be a person led by the Spirit. Restore, it says in verse 6, such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Once we have gone to rescue the individual, gotten him or her out of the trap, then what? We restore such a one. And I hate to be redundant here, but it's what I read in the text of the Scripture from the original language. Keep on restoring such a one. So sometimes there's such damage done in the heart of the individual that it's not enough just to rescue, but we have to restore. And the word restore is used, for instance, in the book of Matthew and the book of Mark about Peter and his brother who were fishermen and they were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and they were mending their nets. That's what it's translated. Mending their nets. It's this word here. It's a word of putting them back in good working order. And this word was also a term in medical parlance at this day and time to describe a physician who would set a bone that was broken or put a joint that was out of joint back in place to put it back so the one who had such a situation medically could begin to function if a shoulder had come out of joint or a tibia had been broken to put it back in its original place so there could be healing. And that's true here. We are to be agents of healing people so that they can regain their walk with the Lord themselves and be filled with the Holy Spirit, restoring such a one, how? In a spirit of gentleness. I don't have to describe why it would be necessary, this restorative process, to be gentle. The illustration out of the Bible that came to me immediately was when a woman who was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus 
by these dirty old men who were religious leaders, by the way, and they were wanting to trap Christ. So they probably had set her up and probably hired somebody to hire her as a prostitute. And they caught her in the act of adultery. And they bring her to Jesus. Isn't that so loving? Bring her to Jesus and say, so what are you going to do about this, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus said, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. That's all he said to him. And then he got down and started doodling in the dirt. And I don't know how long that doodling went on, but it went on for a while. And when he looked up, all he could see was the lady who was accused. Every one of them had left, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. They all left. And then he said, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. And then he said, I don't accuse you either. And that story could have stopped right there and it would be like anything goes with Jesus. I mean, He's so loving. That's what real love is. Real love is not caring enough about the one who is the object of your love to help that person understand that kind of behavior is not anything that will help you. It's going to destroy you. It would have been truncated and null and void had Jesus not done that. So what can be construed by others when we know they're off base spiritually and we sense the Spirit of God leading us to talk to them about it is, well, they'll think I'm holier than thou kind of Christian. Well, we know not. That's not true. Because we know ourselves, don't we? We are people, if you're led by the Holy Spirit, you are in touch with your own frailty spiritually. And you are in touch with the fact, as what Paul says, paraphrased, but were it not for the grace of God, there go I. It's only God's grace that enables me to walk by the Spirit. I cannot point a finger at anybody. But I do have a responsibility, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a follower of Christ, to do what Christ says. Matthew 18. We read it, didn't we? If a brother sins, go to him privately. Mike Woods, go to him privately and talk to him. If he doesn't repent, then take another one with you. Because out of the mouth of two persons, a matter is confirmed. And then if that person still doesn't repent, tell it to the church. That's getting serious, isn't it? But it's the length to which the Lord would want us to go. Not to excommunicate someone. That's not the goal. What is the goal? Rescue and restore the person. Correct? Because they're wandering away. There are people I could name today that once were walking with the Spirit, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, who are now out in the far country. And they have been approached lovingly by people in our fellowship to try to help them to see the need to repent and come back. That's our responsibility. And it's a tough assignment. But what God orders, God makes possible, doesn't He? Well, I could go on and on, but let's look at verse 5. Each one shall bear his own load. Bearing here is the same concept when we look at it with our English eyes, but it's a different word. 
in the original language. And the idea of load here and bearing his own load, this is a load that we have to take with us when we stand as followers of Christ someday before what is called in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians the judgment seat of Christ. Now remember, don't mishear what I hope to have communicated today. If you are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from His love, God's love. Can't, can't anything do it. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you have been forgiven of all your sins. All of them. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But we still sin, don't we? Why? Because we still have to contend with what we looked at last week, what we call our flesh, our own selfishness. And we are to grow. And gradually, as we grow and mature, we'll become less fleshly and more spiritual in our actions. The practical application of following the Holy Spirit of God. So we need to be ready to stand before the Lord. And so what do we do? When you sin, what are you to do as a believer? I'm not talking about those that don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ, there's only one sin, God, uh, one prayer God can hear from you. Did you know that? One prayer that God will hear. We know He's all-knowing, so He doesn't have an incapacity to hear whatever He wants to. But there's only one He will hear in the sense that He will answer. You know what it is? To say, Lord Jesus, I need You. Please forgive me. I don't deserve it, but please come into my life. I want to give you my life, Lord. That's a prayer of salvation. Trusting in Christ for what He's done. And there were people in this room, I'm sure, in a crowd this large, who are in that state. Give your life to Christ. But after you come to Christ, when we do sin, we do rebel, the Bible says, if I confess my sin, and humbly confess it, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? It's awesome. Let me conclude with a story that was recorded in one of his books, the books of Billy Graham, the great evangelist from former generation. He tells a story that he was told by a good friend of his who was on his board of directors who hailed from Boston. The story was this young man, probably 10 years old, maybe 12, his parents were wealthy. They had a beautiful home, not overly ostentatious, but a beautiful home. And the father of the family brought a friend of his who was a believer in Christ, a true believer. There was fruit being born through his life. Brought him home with him one night, and he was drunk. So drunk, he probably would not remember where he was when he woke up the next morning. He told his wife before the days of cell phones, the man of the house told his wife that what had happened to this man, he'd found him on the street. He'd had an alcoholic problem before and he had come to Christ and he fell off the wagon. And he, she said, I'll know exactly what I'll do for him. And they had one room that they kept as a guest room and it was beautifully appointed. And the bed itself was beautifully adorned with the beautiful sheets, blanket, bedspread, all that. Four-poster bed. And that was the place that the father, the man of the house, took this man and got him 
in bed. And the boy was watching all this. And he was a little afraid to ask her why daddy did it. But he said, why did you let that happen, mom? And this is what she said. A pro proper apply, uh, application of what we've seen here today. She says, when he wakes up, he's going to be very ashamed of what he has done. And we want him, your father and I want him to know that we love him. And we want to help him not to find himself in that state again. What a beautiful picture of what God wants for us. That may be an extreme example, but what we do know is there are people in our sphere. Look around you. Are there people whom you have not seen for a while here? Get in touch with them and say, hey, I've missed you. I'm concerned about you. Are you all right? Are you growing in the Lord still or has something happened? And God will begin to use you, hopefully, to restore that person if they have wandered off the path and not continued keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The first time these words were read, they were impactful undoubtedly. But now here we are, 2,000 years later almost, and they're still alive and active because, Holy Spirit, You're the one who is the author of those words. And Holy Spirit, work in my life, work in our lives. Help us to be men and women who know Christ to want to be filled with the Spirit, be useful to You for the upkeeping of Your kingdom and the furtherance of it. And for those who don't know Jesus, Lord, we pray that You would put it so strongly on their heart that they have no other choice except to yield to Him and give Him control of their lives forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.